Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Hi, Bill. We're in a, the third episode of In Between, our Ordinary Life podcast. So if you are new to our podcast and you're following along, thank you and welcome. So we're using this uh, in between as a way to um, just have personal conversations about what passes between Holly and me and also how we're trying to navigate the space between the no longer and the not yet. And more specifically, how are we using the teachings of Jesus and Buddha to help us along the way? And this coming Sunday, we're going to talk about um, a, a hot topic, and that's uh, anger. I think it's sort of interesting that we chose this topic several weeks ago. Like we've been sort of chewing on this for some time, and that it sort of seems like a good intuition that we have follow this thread because I think that the teachings of Jesus and Buddha and the Eightfold Path can guide us not only in the time of the pandemic when everything seems a bit upended, but also during this current iteration of racial violence and protest. You know, I was thinking how ironic it is we're getting all of this information about how much money is being spent on police. And <clears throat> we've known for a long, long time how much money we spend on the military. A disproportionate amount of our budget goes to, of the national budget goes to military. We're the most heavily armed country on the planet. And we spend all this money on policing and people don't feel safe. Right. People of color don't feel safe and, and the white establishment doesn't feel safe. Right because we keep piling more money into it. And it, it just seems like there is a stance of fear that we've taken on as a nation, a stance of reaction rather than response or creativity. It's so interesting to hold both, right? On the one hand, our country as we know it, not when our country was inhabited by Native Americans. But the spirit of the modern America was on revolution and independence, and in many ways, creativity. So it's hard to hold that with a kind of spirit of fear, reactivity, and scarcity, too. What do you make of that? Well, we have, uh, from the beginning of humans, I think, had a tendency to divide into us versus them. And we tried to deal with the us versus them in a variety of ways uh, throughout history. We have tried to dominate them. We have tried to revolt against them. Problem with that is that people who are revolutionaries frequently become dominators after a successful revolution. We have tried to assimilate them. Um, the most severe examples of that would be what happened during uh, Spain, for example, during the Crusades, or how the colonists tried to force Native Americans to assimilate by putting Native American children in Indian schools, giving them Christian names, 
forbidding them to speak their native language. Um, we tried to obliterate them. Uh, we tried to compete with them, but we haven't figured out a way yet to um, invite people into this empowering community that Jesus talked about, or in into the sangha that Buddha talked about, in ways that allow people to feel safe and free. And um, until we address the um, need to be free from fear, free from a sense of hopelessness, free from um, what the Buddhists call uh, craving, um, I think we're stuck in a bad place. People have to do their spiritual work. And I have been uh, harping on this for as long as I've been doing spiritual teaching. Um, really, you, you cannot expect to get better at anything without practice. And um, that includes being able to be in the present moment. I have a, a colleague who says that, you know, the ability to live in the present moment will get a whole lot easier when you realize just how frequently the present moment sucks. <laughs> and, <laughs> or realize just how frequently you're in the present moment, which is in every in moment. Every moment. <laughs> but a lot of people don't realize that because they're either out there trying to get somewhere else, craving, yeah. or they're trying yeah. to get rid of something, which is aversion. And... Um, both Jesus and Buddha said, all you got is right now. Right. It's interesting, too, because when I think about the present moment, absolutely, we need to attend to this moment. And yet, with every moment that we exist in this body, our history follows us into the moment. And it informs our fear. It informs our trauma responses. It informs our, uh, our love responses, even right? Our, the, the way that our thinking has been shaped by our histories also informs our response to the present moment, which is that non-dual idea of like, well, if we were just doing a daily spiritual practice, we'd be more aware of how our history shapes our present moment because we could dial in a little bit more. Do you think so? Do you think that's sort of the mitigation between past and present, if you will? Uh, I think that's certainly one of the important blocks. Uh, uh, the the usefulness of a daily practice also makes people less reactive. And that's hugely important. If you're looking at what's going on with people protesting in the streets, uh, very often uh, there's no uh, forethought about a good way to deal with what's going to happen. There was a story about um, a, a sheriff. I, I've got this uh, located bookmark somewhere in my uh, news stories, who um, saw what was happening in his community. This was sometime last week, and the protesters were coming, and he walked toward them. And as he did so, he took off his helmet and laid his baton down on the ground and walked over and said, I want to march with you. There was no violence that grew out of that. And he was interviewed later, and I saw that interview on TV. And he said, uh, you know, I love the people that I serve, and I don't want violence to occur. Here's a man who had given some forethought about what is the best way to engage what is happening at the moment. and. If we do not learn to listen deeply to each other, 
we are going to continue to create a culture of fear. And that deep listening grows first out of an ability just to calm down mm -hmm. and to listen to ourselves and to be real clear about what do I want to create in this present moment? What do I want to bring forth? Um, how can I enlarge my life in the lives of those people who are around me? Yeah, it's, his actions were certainly um, not usual for what we visually see for police actions right now. We're seeing a lot of police show up in riot gear with full on uh, protection. We've seen people get pepper sprayed with no provocation. We've seen an older man get pushed down with no provocation. So, you know, it's hard to hold that individuals within the system have good hearts, good intentions, mm -hmm. and want to do right by their position. But the system, which is also only made of individuals, has become like its own thing that has its own personality and its own response to moments like this. And it's hard to know whether individuals who want to better the system will sort of win the day or whether the system itself is more powerful than the, than the individuals. There was also, on the flip side of that, a number of police who, in protest to um, disciplinary charges brought against a couple of members of the squad, quit their jobs because they didn't agree with the police being held accountable. And that, you know, so we have both of these examples going on at the same time. And I think it's hard if we're watching to know where to stand, you know, where we, we see this movement toward defunding the police, which I think unfortunately is a bit of a misnomer because I think if we're in reality, we can't say we don't, we don't need police. We've created a nation state in which we need police. However, we certainly don't need to put so many resources toward policing so that things like education, healthcare, community organizations and mental health get overlooked. You know, I just had this thought, Holly, that um, you and I both uh, have fallen in love with Ilya Delio and how, how um, what her work and um, Michael Morwood's work and Brian Swim's work and, uh, and so many other people that you could name a lot better than, than I, what this work is calling us to do is to go back and look at everything now through the lens of evolutionary cosmology. Right. Now, here we have COVID-19. Now, here we have this unveiling of profound racism that has been made part of the DNA of this culture. And now we're having to relook at everything through the lens of the... Um, what this disease, what these diseases, I would say, both of them are diseases, have, have are causing us to, to look at. And look at the teachings of Jesus through these lens. Jesus came to, and spoke to a society that was ruled by violence, a society that was ruled by domination, a society that was ruled by greed. That's our culture. That is our culture. Um, I have said that I don't watch 
much TV, and that's true. I like to watch educational programs and good movies and series and that sort of thing on TV, but I don't watch much commercial television. What I notice is that almost without fail, every time I turn my television on or every time I change channels, what I'm given is a commercial. And 80% of those commercials are pharmacology commercials. They're commercials about some sort of medicine that I need to take. Or I don't understand why that is, but it is a revelation of the, the, the religion of our culture is consumerism and uh, big corporations. One of the other things that commercials sell is happiness, right? You'll, but in a packaged way, not in a sort of inferior way. Happiness by uh, this new car and imagine yourself driving this new car through winding roads and mountains, you know? So we package happiness in this way too. And in doing so, I think we then sort of become addicted to numbing ourselves to what suffering, which we talked about last week, can be about and how suffering might also transform what I want to say false happiness is into true happiness. And I'm sure you've noticed uh, that it's been pointed out several places in the media that one of the things that has just absolutely spiked during this shutdown is the consumption of alcohol. Yeah. It's just gone way up. I bl- In some ways, I blame David Brooks for that. Because uh, <laughs> he wrote the piece about the bars open at 10 a.m. <laughs> well, it, what he said in the very first opinion piece about the shutdown was air, airport rules. Uh, are now in effect, meaning you can have a beer at 10 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think that right. I'm, I'm wanting to make relevant the teachings of both Buddha and Jesus because both of them spoke about how religious and political leadership had been unfaithful to their calling. And uh, they spoke to a people who were feeling hopeless Mm -hmm. about their current circumstance, and they offered a path out. Um, You know, Buddha had a lot more time to devote to his teaching than Jesus did. Yeah. But uh, the proof of the effectiveness of the teaching of Jesus is in the community that grew up around uh, his teachings after his death. And the same thing is true for Buddha, the community that grew up uh, around his teachings and him to preserve his teachings uh, are evidence of the effectiveness of the teachings themselves. Mm-hmm. I've been reading, you know, another person that falls into the sort of lineage of Ilya Delio, Brian Swim, Thomas Berry is Pierre Thierry de Chardin. Mm-hmm. And while he doesn't write or speak to, in my experience so far, sort of social issues, I think we have to recognize that his position as a white Jesuit European priest privileged him, protected him in some ways from social issues of the day. On the other hand, he also risked losing that identity should he keep writing and publishing about evolution as part of spirituality. 
So he was not allowed to publish in his lifetime, which you know, but he kept letters and he sent letters and he kept writings, which were eventually handed down and we have them today. But one of the things that I am finding ways in is, you know, spiritual practice so often is interpreted as the self work, the, and I think the danger of only making it about self and my own experience is that it becomes, I'm going to use the term navel gazing, right? It becomes too self oriented, but he talks about this sort of permeable membrane between the with and the without of Mm -hmm. things and to place ourselves in that space in between again, the within and the without of things. What do you think about that? Well, I certainly think that, um, some people can use a meditation practice to escape. There's a lot of that. There's been a lot of that, um, uh, pushed uh, as a commercial product in recent years. There's all there are all these apps that you can get for your smartphone that uh, promise to give you calm. Mm-hmm. I certainly think that uh, a a meditation practice can be one of self-absorption, and we've seen a lot of that in uh, in the commerce about. Sp- pop spirituality recently you get all these apps for your smartphone that promise you a calm mind and so forth and so that's a meditation practice that's not a spiritual practice there's a difference between the two spirit uh, in the sense that i'm using it right now in this context is spiritual practice helps a person develop the awareness that i am connected to everything and everyone And so that leads to an awareness of injustice and a need for compassion. But sure, I can sit down and calm myself and do all that stuff. But that's not the same as having a spiritual practice. In in the Vipassana practice that I was trained in years ago, every Mm -hmm. sit ends with, may I be filled with loving kindness and compassion. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy, may no harm come to me, no difficulties come to me, blah, blah, blah. You know that. But it doesn't stop there. May the people I love be, and then may the people who are strangers outside my gate be, and may my enemies be. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a a friend who back during the, the days of the 60s, had and the Vietnam War, had a picture of Casper Weinberg on his meditation table and it sat between him and the statue of buddha because he said i do not want my negative feelings about anyone to block the buddha mind from being a part of my heart now that's a hard practice for a lot of people to think about embracing and i don't think that one should uh, adopt it immediately but if you wanted to jump in to get real help on this kind of practice. Read some of Pima Chodron's work because she talks about how Tonglen, which is a a practice of how how you take in the pain of the world into yourself Mm -hmm. and then release out feelings of loving kindness and compassion. That's a spiritual practice. And 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 so uh, yes, I certainly understand the critique that can be given to a meditation practice. 
it's very popular in our in our culture right now. I mean, you know, uh, yoga is probably the new religion for many Americans. As is buying the cute pants that go along with yoga. So, you know, again, we've turned it into this kind of consumerist behavior. Yeah. Uh, thanks for making that distinction between meditation and spiritual practice. Joanna Macy calls um, what you're referring to becoming, she has a term for it, but it's likened to becoming warriors. And to become spiritual warriors, it means, again, to use the metaphor, permeable membrane. Mm -hmm. Our hearts need to become permeable membranes. So um, this would be an advertisement that I would give for um, what we're doing Sunday. <laughs> becoming spiritual warriors. Becoming spiritual warriors, because yeah. um, if again, you look, then you'll find this much more in uh, Buddhism and Hinduism than you will in, uh, in some understandings of Christianity. But I've been reading up this week because we're going to talk about anger as a spiritual tool this coming Sunday. And you can go on the internet and look at some of the images of angry Buddhists and angry gods in Buddhism. I mean, they are fierce looking creatures. And um, these are painted and put on the walls of monasteries mm -hmm. as examples of um, uh, fierce energy that can be mobilized to create a, a good outcome. We're, we're going to elaborate on that more when, when we uh, meet together on, on yeah. Sunday. But um, anger is, is only a, a bad energy if you don't know how to use it right and, and you know anger can be very transformative and creative if we can sit with it and not let it fester and i will also say not deny it you know it's so often we're so fearful of ang anger i know for a long time in my own life for a variety of reasons i was afraid of anger because i had a perception of what anger looked like and it, it wasn't how I wanted to be. And I've had to, as, a, as an adult, learn how to transform anger into love, if you will. And I, I rely in some ways on a lot in my mind and in writing with this, the many faces of love. And I, I think we have this uh, soft idea of love, that it, it is soft and you know, a soft place to land, the mother's arms, uh, you know, re resting the children on her bosom. But I think love is fierce at times too, you know, and love, love demands something more of us than a feeling or a sentiment. Love is not just sentimental or nostalgic. It's also active and activating. And I think that can be what creative anger can look like is a, is, is an activating of a kind of love. Yes, and, and um, again, I know I'm always recommending books. I know that that's part of my seven personality on the Enneagram, I think, or my fiveness. <laughs> uh, but there's a wonderful book written by Thich Nhat Hanh on anger. And it's not an insubstantial book at all. I don't know if you've read this book. But it's it's a, a fairly thick book that Thich Nhat Hanh wrote on anger and how to use anger um, as, as the very thing that we're talking about on Sunday. It's been a long time since I've read it. But one of the things that 
um, Thich Nhat Hanh says is that when a good mother has an infant who is angry, who's upset, mm -hmm. the mother does not punish the child for being angry. The mother does not squelch the child's anger. What the mother does is pick the child up. And in that very act of embracing the child, a calmness begins to come over the child. Not immediately, you're a mother and you know that. Sometimes children have meltdowns that go on for a long time. But being connected with the mother gives them both a way to know that there's security in the moment. And the mother, the good mother, will look at the child and check to make sure that the child is not soiled or hungry or hurt. And, and if the child is just in a mood, the mother will simply hold the child to her and walk around patting the child until eventually the child calms down. So that's a metaphor that Thich Nhat Hanh uses for how we should deal with anger is not to try to get rid of it, but yeah. to uh, hold it like an upset infant and investigate what's going on. But, you know, it is to speak to the, the mothering of anger in some ways. Um, I think when I became a mother, it, it was another call to really do some internal work around, I guess, anger, right? Is because there there was at times, especially with three infants um, or three babies under the age of 22 months at one point, you know, was a lot. All at once. All at once. A lot of fear that I wasn't enough, a lot of frustration that I couldn't respond to the needs quickly enough or often enough or well enough. There was exhaustion. And I think exhaustion can lead to that feeling of helplessness and a feeling of helplessness can lead to anger when we don't have the space to sit with it. So, you know, in the example of being a mother, I've, I've responded with Thich Nhat Hanh's way of dealing with the child. And I know there were moments when I also just had to walk out and go, oh my gosh, like I need a minute <laughs> to mother my own self before I could go back and respond to the, the angry wailing child. And um, that is for sure, just speaking directly to the demands of uh, a caregiver in my case, the mother who stayed home with kiddos, that demand, that area for growth is ever present. <laughs> How we respond mm -hmm. to, the, to the moment of anger or resistance. My youngest child has taught me some incredible lessons about responding to his anger. And I have been able to take them, I think, with humility because I've allowed him to tell me, this is what I need from you. There was a moment once when or I came in from outside and he was doing something that I was like, I, this is, I don't want that to happen. I reacted and I was like, what do you think you're doing? You know, the kind of typical stern mother reaction. And he came up to me with his hands on his hips and said, mommy, you need to speak nicely to me. <laughs> He was like five. And, you know, at, the, at that time, I realized, you know, some parents, understandably, might react in that moment out of fear and anger. I chose, and somewhere, and you said, this is where the Holy Spirit just came in. I took a breath, and I just got down on one knee and said, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. Right. It was a great story. So I think re restoring moments is also possible. And, and what happens? 
how are we willing to, I don't want to say there's like this wide margin of error where you could like beat your child one second and then go back and say, I'm so sorry, <laughs> the next second. There's, there's a dangerous margin. But in that margin where we, we do find ourselves in a reactive state and we, and we don't want to be, there's this opportunity to cross the threshold and to restore it. And that's become a really important and vulnerable act in our family is this act of restoring. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to become angry. We're all going to react where we didn't mean to. And I've taught my kids, my husband, all of us participate in acts of restoring with each other. Yeah, there are some psychological models that uh, contend that anger is um, never a primary emotional response to any stimulation. I personally don't embrace that. I understand what those uh, developmental psychologists are saying. They, they're, they're saying that the primary response is either fear or uh, grief or anticipated fear or anticipated grief that we sidestep by getting angry. I, I, I'm not sure I believe that. Mm -hmm. I think that um, if I see that someone is, for example, hurting one of my children, mm. uh, I have a spontaneous reaction to go into a protective mm -hmm. mode that says with clear force, stop it. Yeah. And what Jesus or Buddha would say is that when we see each other as brother and sister, and we see that someone is being deprived of their rights or subjugated in some way to violence, the proper emotional response is to be energized to say to the powers that be, stop it. And um, if they don't. Mm -hmm. Content, and if they don't agree to that, uh, we take we take uh, steps to make them stop it. That's where in the eightfold path, what might be called right speech and or right action. That those those actually behaviors of speaking truth to power, which are not tame, by the way. It's not a like, sir, would you be kind enough to stop speaking to me that way? <laughs> it's firm, and that's where I think fierce love comes in is there's a firmness to right speech and right action that sets a clear boundary of what is okay and not okay based on someone's well-being. And I think that's what these, what's going on right now is in protest is saying, I would say the majority of protesters across the country and even the world right now are, are using right speech. Right. They're saying, stop it, enough. And I, and I think that is an act of love and an act of um, long overdue injustice being transformed into creative anger. And steps have been taken in some local governments to revise and relook at policing. Right now, Houston, uh, the city council is meeting right now to discuss budget and how will our budget be allotted so that we can look at policing and community growth differently. So the right speech, which is not calm, tame, or even tolerant of injustice is saying, stop it, we've had enough. We have to do the work that is required to create social and commercial and political interactions 
that are just and fair for all people. Where societies actually reflect the truth of interbeing. Interbeing is not just a good idea, it's reality, right? That's what Thich Nhat Hanh says, interbeing is reality. How we choose to live into that reality consciously or not is where humans need to do the work, where humans need to wrestle with our conscience and wrestle with um, our God or wrestle with our communities and wrestle with our own selves. What's blocking me from choosing to see the other as I want to be seen and as I see myself? So um, I, I don't mean this to sound arrogant, but I do want to say that um, this has been my platform for um, 50 years. Yeah. Um, I, it's not arrogant. It's just true. Well, I, I, I mean, you know, what I wanted to do in my own spiritual teaching was to create teachings, and they're not original with me. I mean, I'm using, I'm, I, my home religion is Christianity, so I'm using the teachings of Jesus as, as my home. But um I wanted to create teachings that were not sectarian, that were not exclusive, that were not um, offensive. Uh, I don't mean that they're not, not easy to do. They're not easy to do. But I said at the very beginning that the essence of spiritual practice is developing the capacity to see what is. That both the, the, the essence and the content of spiritual practice to be with what is without and to do that without judgment or reaction and when i came up with that 50 years ago i had no idea that its meaning would be so dramatically changed or enlarged uh, as the years would pass uh, i had no idea about the evolutionary cosmology when i came up with that sentence right but now that sentence, what, to be with what is, what is, my understanding of what is has changed so dramatically yeah. in the last 50 years that it's just unrecognizable. Right. And, and that is, I think, as um, Omiraku writes about growing up, a mature adult spirituality is living into, I think, our deepest intuition about reality. And our our, our true reality is that we all started as one part of the many and that's interbeing. And again, as Terre de Chardin says, the within and the without, I can only focus on my actions and reactions, but I have to also know that my actions and reactions have a without to them. They have a rippling effect to everything and everyone that I come into contact with. And that's, um, that's where we need growth. <laughs> you know, Richard Rohr says that um, <laughs> you can condense the entire teaching of Jesus, both what he did and said, into one sentence. And that is that he spent his life trying to make the two one. Uh, we watched um, the James Baldwin, sort of a documentary style film, I Am Not Your Negro. I've seen that. Yeah, it's, it was, it's good. And I, as you know, I've been rereading a lot of Baldwin in the last couple of years. But, um, you know, Baldwin really investigates without having the sort of quote unquote religious or spiritual language about it. He's investigating these ideas. He says at some point, 
I could never bring myself to hate the white folks. And what he recognizes is if he puts energy, and I'm not saying that as a way to make white America feel better about itself, that, that his inability to hate is also forgiveness. I don't, I don't think that he's saying, I forgive you. I think he's saying, I could never bring myself to hate because if I focus my energy on hate, then I am also hating an aspect of myself. Right. And he valued himself also enough to say, I, if I want to live in love with myself, then I must also honor the space where I have to try to live in love with others, even when I don't understand them. And I just take that as such an incredible act of faith and courage. You know, uh, Alan Watts says that the whole creative order is um, designed as an adult education class. And uh, what can we learn right now? Mm. And just what's a lesson for me out of what's going on in my culture right now? And how can I bring an enlarged being to that? One of the things that I'm going to say Sunday is I want to begin with um, talking about why, why is it that humans seem to fall off of this path of enlightened self-interest from almost the very beginning? Because if we can understand what that process is, I think that we can um, grow up uh, as Amuraku says, we can become, um, we, we can bring adult being into existence in the world. And that's what we need is grown-ups at the table. Right. Holly, by the time that we finish this, we're going to have mastered how to pronounce Amuraku's name. I know. Gosh, we just have to put it out into the ether that we're so sorry. Our Texas accents get in the way of your beautiful Irish name. Um Uh, To close, just to sort of recap this idea that anger fueled by love can be transformative. And that spiritual practice is designed to transform our being into an enlarged way of being in the world, into a more loving way of being in the world. I love this book of poetry by Young Pueblo, which is actually called Inward. And I'll read a short meditation. It says, they asked her, what does it mean to love yourself? She answered, it means to uncover and release whatever keeps you from true happiness, to love, honor, and accept every single part of you, especially those that are kept in the dark. It means to observe yourself continually with the utmost honesty and without judgment. Loving yourself means striving to reach new heights of self-understanding so as to cultivate the wisdom that inner peace requires. In short, it's the start of a revolution. And James Baldwin would say that participating in love is growing up. Right. And I always want to make this response to what you said. You're talking about transformation, not change. There's a difference between transformation and change. A a simple way that I explain it is that if you're asleep and you're having a dream that you're being chased by a tiger, Mm -hmm. and then that dream comes to an end and you have a dream that you're floating peacefully down a river, you're 
even your physiological state has changed during the time of dreaming, but it's not a real transformation. It's just a change from one dream to another and the things that accompany that dream. When you wake up, you're transformed from a sleeping state to a waking state. That's one of the differences between change and transformation. Mm-hmm. And we're seeking transformation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's get it. Let's get to it. <laughs> Let's get to it. I will see you uh, Sunday morning and uh, back here next week. Okay. Thanks, Bill. Have a good day. Bye. The music at the beginning and end of the podcast is sung by DeAndre Johnson in Sugarland, Texas. It's an original song that is lamenting the deaths of too many black sons over the last years and was recently re-sung at the death of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. It is enough, the prophets cry, yet still black men are